0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Morath and Hannah Shaw, the wildlife podcast from the Hawk Conservancy Trust. As you know, we're all about birds at the Trust, but birds don't live alone. They're part of a whole ecosystem. So this podcast is our chance to take more of a general look at wildlife beyond birds.
1: If you are itching to know more about biodiversity or barn owls, or eager to explore the worlds of woodlands and wetlands, basically... If you like wildlife, you're in good company.
0: And you don't need to be an expert yourself. We've got that covered as we're joined by some of the greatest voices in conservation to tell us more about what's happening right now in the wild world around us. Coming up on this month's episode, we'll be travelling the globe from behind our microphones as we take a closer look at the impressive feat of nature that is migration.
1: Yes, whether it's popping cross-country for a better chance of a decent meal, or making an epic journey to meet with the perfect partner, migration is part of life for so much of the natural world.
0: And we'll also be taking a closer look at the migration of a very special species of vulture and how our very own project at the Hawk Conservancy Trust is helping us learn more about it.
1: It's all to come in this month's episode of Nature's a Hoot, but first, Tom. Yes? It's been a while, hasn't it? How's it has... things with you?
0: Yeah, it's, it has been a while. It's um, this every two months thing is kind of throwing me a little bit because um yeah, yeah it feels like a long time since we've we've chatted uh, on the podcast but uh, lovely to be back um, and well yeah. as we were talking about last time lots has happened for me because uh, i'm i'm a daddy now <laughs> uh, yeah. which is very exciting um, our little boy arrived on the 21st of january so he's at the time of recording he's a little over a month old so yes sleep well not not quite sleepless nights he's been pretty good but um yeah it's uh it's certainly an education that's for sure
1: <laughs> i'm sure you seem to be taking to it like a duck to water tom oh, you're doing very you. well oh,
0: for all of the, for everyone who's listening um that said child rowan is actually in my arm right now while we're recording so if you hear some little yep. little noises it's not me just having a bit of a gulp or passing a bit of wind from the back <laughs> end it is it's my child <laughs> <laughs>
1: having a bit of a gurgle
0: yeah (laughs) how about you what's been going on in your world
1: um well much the same really It's going okay thank you
0: (laughs) much the same yeah sorry much the same that Things are okay rather than much the same as you've also <laughs> had a child because that was a very quick turnaround. Oh, no, and you I haven't also really haven't had a child. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yeah, ev- um, much the same for me. So very good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, really good to be back on Nature's a Hoot. I know, um I think we thought that doing sort of cutting back a little bit with both of our workloads increasing was... Uh, going to save us some time but we seem to have somehow managed to leave this one until (laughs) the last minute the very very last minute well we had to
0: pack so much research into doing this one I'm I'm really really pleased that we're doing an episode about migration I think it's kind of quite topical in some of the uh, things that we'll talk about today obviously the projects that we're working with uh, looking at migration of uh, vultures in particular but also maybe touching a little bit on our changing climate as well. And I think there's probably not been a more pressing time to talk about that than after we've had like two storms in a week this week. And the Trust and the some of the aviaries at the Trust actually bore the brunt um, of, of those yeah. two storms that came through. We had two major aviaries come down and thankfully no birds uh, injured during during the destruction of a couple of or those people. aviaries. Or people, yeah, stuff, stuff all, all healthy and, and uh and well as well after that um and i'm hoping everybody who's listening is nice and safe from that storm as well because it was it was not very fun um no i was actually looking from outside my window at home thinking of the guys actually on site at the trust and, and i know they would have put in their all to make sure uh, that all the animals uh, were, were safe there but yeah really scary weather conditions it seems to be happening more and more often doesn't it
1: oh uh, it has been it's been it's quite um sort of thought-provoking really isn't it because these storms just seem to be at this time of year now just seem to be one after the other and yeah like you said it does really make you worry for people who have to work outside like a lot of our colleagues do and you do a lot of the time and I do sometimes um and obviously wildlife as well it's worrying Mm. isn't it to think that they're stuck out there
0: yeah although what obviously it is very worrying for wildlife but what I will say is just uh the next day, after the, the first storm came through, and we were still experiencing gusts of about fifty miles an hour on the park, um, Gary our head of Liv- Living Collection, was telling me he looked up in the sky and was watching four or five red kites quite happily wheeling around above the truss yeah. so they kind of just get on with it and deal with it, don't they because they have to and they're yeah. masters of the sky, but um, yeah, my goodness what a what a difficult way to, to to live when you have to survive through that
1: yeah, absolutely
0: so probably should be on to our main topic of discussion for this episode, which is migration. It's a topic we've not really discussed very much on the program before, but it makes up such a huge part of the lives of so many animals across the world. It can be gruelling, it can be dangerous, and sometimes even fatal. So why, oh why, would any animal on the planet want to migrate? Hannah. <laughs> good qu-
1: good question. It is a big question. Um, big question. I... I'm not sure that animals want to migrate. I
0: No, it's not like going on a jolly. It's I not guess like they, a quick vacation. No.
1: I mean they've lots of animals have evolved to migrate and adapted to migration. But there's so many reasons, aren't there? And probably a lot of reasons that we maybe we don't understand and we don't even know for lots of species. Um but I guess probably some of the main ones we can touch on in this episode are the obvious to find food maybe um they feed seasonally so they might be for example with wildebeest they're chasing the green grass um Mm. and they're moving they're moving in time with that so that they can get the best food um they might be moving to find suitable habitat to breed in um to avoid inclement weather inclement weather Mm. um maybe to find better places to yeah to breed and raise youngsters um escaping predation perhaps and of course avoiding competition whether that's within species or with other species um
0: yes there's a whole host of different different uh, reasons why an animal might might migrate and you touched on the the wildebeest there and that that kind of great wildebeest migration always springs to mind when I hear the word migration because it's just like an epic journey isn't it for them and uh, a a perilous one as well. Um, So how do animals know where to go and this was something that I when we knew we were going to do this episode I kind of really wanted to drill into um, and like you said, it's something that we don't 100% understand, migration as a general topic. Um, mm. And it's actually quite funny, it, well, funny now, and I'm sure people will be thinking the same in a few hundred years' time, looking at our science, at, at kind of how primitive maybe some of our ideas are. But looking back through yeah. the history books at where people thought some migratory species of birds went... Um, you know, people thinking that swallows and house martins would dive underneath the water and, and live underneath the mud in a frozen pond as it freezes over and was just like crazy, crazy to me. Um, but obviously we wouldn't have known. We we didn't know at that point that um, the birds would migrate. But there's a few kind of schools of thought as to how animals know where to go. And it kind of comes back to the question of how do we... Uh, know where to go to somewhere that we've never been before. Now, we're going to completely discount the idea that you might have a sat-nav or you might have popped onto Google Maps before you've headed out. Uh, Let's really think of our kind of human brain, our human adaptations to know where to go. Um, Using environmental clues, things that are around you, you're going to move to areas that looks like it's a more prosperous place and a safer place than somewhere that isn't. also, mass migration. They're going to follow each other. Those herds of yeah. wildebeest crossing the plains, even crossing like uh, infested waters uh, filled with uh, all sorts of different predators. Um, it, they're yeah. going to do it just because they can see other animals doing exactly the same. That herd instinct comes, comes to mind. Yes,
1: uh, definitely a lot to do with the herd in- instinct, isn't it? With wildebeest, did you know that wildebeest actually pick up the um, smell of the rain? And they follow the smell of the rain. Wow. Because then they go, and then I think it's probably, uh, you know, a few of them start to move and then more and more follow. Mm. But that's how they initially start initially, migrating. Yeah. Do you know there's a word for um, that, that
0: smell of rain? You know that oh, yeah, really lovely lovely smell? It's one of my favourite yeah. words, it's petrichor. When you yeah, get it's a really <laughs> hot summer and then it starts raining, and you go, oh, it smells like rain, that's petrichor. Anyway, uh, yeah. you might need that in a pub quiz one day. Who knows yeah.
1: <laughs> lots of animals I think will learn it's passed down through generations like elephants for example yeah
0: um, and there's some theories actually that it's kind of inbuilt into an animal's genes to migrate so it's not it's not just the idea that it's taught from generation to generation but it's also kind of inbuilt so if that animal was kind yeah. of lost or displaced for whatever reason they would still head in that same direction because that's what the species has been doing that's for amazing, so long isn't it is not it yeah. yeah,
1: I think I don't know how we like, we don't understand that at all. <laughs> no,
0: maybe, maybe one day we will.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there's definitely evidence for um, certain things being actually, like you said, yeah, passed down through the genes, inherited from past experiences. It's, I don't know wow. how it works exactly, but um, yeah, it's very, very. Is that like the elephant graveyard
0: in, in The Lion King? Like they all go to the same yeah. place to, to yeah, end their know lives. Yeah, they all go there. Is that true?
1: I don't know. I don't think oh.
0: so. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably a bit I don't of dramatic there. I think there there's a, they Disney. definitely
1: that's it probably comes from they do mourn. Mm. And they'll go to like they will spend time with dead elephants. Yeah. And even if they're not part of their family group, if they discover a dead ele- another dead elephant, they will go and um investigate and touch it and wow. smell it and yeah,
0: yeah, super empathetic and emotional yeah. beasts, aren't they, for sure. And then we obviously talked about other environmental factors. So even things like the sun and the cycles of the moon and the yeah. stars, that was kind of our first steps into navigation throughout our world, wasn't it? And certainly there's animals that are going to be using those same visual clues um, f- following the cycles of the seasons and, and what they can see up there in the sky. Um, and also the, this magnetic field idea. Now, I, I know this has kind of gone one way or the other over, over time, and I remember hearing this as a child, that birds have got some kind of uh, magnetic chemical within yeah. their brain or within their eyes that allow them to see, in inverted commas, the magnetic field of the, of the planet. Um, and then I remember reading that that was, that was a load of rubbish. <laughs> and that but it seems that this theory is kind of making a bit of a bit of a comeback and and there's been some studies that have kind of dubbed uh, birds like the european robin as a as like a living compass basically they're so good at orientating themselves uh, using the earth's magnetic field um, because of a yeah. chemical that's within the retina of the the bird's eye known as cryptochrome have you heard this as well
1: i've heard no i haven't read the most recent stuff on it um but i just googled it right now and i think i'm yeah i think i found maybe the article that you were looking at and um yeah that's so interesting and it seems to be recent so obviously yeah like scientists do they've gone (laughs) they've gone uh, they've said no that's not right and then gone back and said actually maybe it is. maybe let's have another look (laughs) um yeah maybe let's think about this again um Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, And, yeah, they have a sort of built-in compass that they... That's so weird, isn't it? it? Yeah. Because that's how a compass works with the magnetic field. So they have essentially a built-in compass that tells them where to go. That's just
0: amazing. And this is a fairly recent study, actually, from the University of Oxford. And, uh, yeah, it's essentially they've take, they've tried to take that molecule um that is also present in the bird's eye to try to understand how it works um just yeah amazing how how do you kind of fathom how that might look imagining being able to literally see the magnetic field of the the magnetic field of the earth around you is, yeah. it's just amazing and that's obviously going to help them navigate from from a to b
1: yeah amazing another one i was thinking about as we were um going through there, was things like um, turtles in the ocean that use the um, mm. the streams, don't they? Like the Gulf Stream. I don't know if it is the, yes. the Gulf yeah, Stream. Yes, yeah, movements of water. But the, yeah... yeah um, to help them, yeah, like in Finding Nemo. i bring bringing yeah, out all the yeah. Disney films today. That's what I've got in my. <laughs> that's head where as I've well. learnt most of my biology, obviously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's where I've. That's exactly what I had in my head was when they joined the little stream yeah. and they're swimming <laughs> along the stream in the ocean. The like
0: surfer turtle, in, yeah. the, in the film, wasn't it? <laughs> Is he all right? Yeah, I think he's going to have an imprint of my zip on his nose when he wakes up. But um.
1: So yeah, and talking of um, you know. Uh, ocean migrations there's just some incredible just some incredible distances and incredible ways that animals move around the oceans when we think of when you think of sort of how far you go in your daily life you just move around i don't know you probably move like 20 miles at the most on a on a good day
0: i'll try and make it less than that to be honest if i, if I possibly yeah. can
1: <laughs> yeah i mean if you're staying at home and just taking the dog for a walk then it's probably like a mile to, or two radius from your home yeah. isn't it yeah but like a, a humpback whale and gray whales move like thousands and thousands of miles on like an annual basis a gray yeah. whale the new the newest record for example for a gray whale um Was a female that moved 16,700 miles.
0: Over a year. So is that on migration, or is that literally just like following food, or...?
1: Lots of whales move into different areas to breed, don't they, and different areas to feed and follow, like, those ones will follow plankton, I guess, because that's what they eat. Um, But, yeah, it's just incredible, like, um, how far they can go. I mean, that one was... She was blown off course, I think, a little bit. She was... About 11,000 kilometres. Sorry, I've switched from miles to kilometres. But she was about 11,000 <laughs> kilometres from... the yourself at home. The no- <laughs> yeah, the normal range. Um, so her total movement was something like 27,000 kilometres. It's just
0: ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> so I was, I was also trying to find some like seriously amazing distances. And um, I was reading up on the Arctic Tern, which have like one oh, of the yeah. longest migrations of all. And they do this round trip from like the Arctic to the Antarctic each year, so they breed in the Arctic and then they yeah. head south and I couldn't believe it, but the round trip for them in total is something like thirty five thousand kilometers, something like twenty two thousand miles every single year yeah that's <laughs> i mean outrageous but the but the the bodies of these these animals must just be so well built. I mean, I'd just like crumble into dust, I think, after the first couple of thousand miles. And this is like every year. And, you know, admittedly, they're not going to have, you know, huge lifespans and expectancies. Although some, you know, whales do, don't they, actually? Cetaceans have got pretty long lifespans and expectancies. Um, I guess um, they're
1: so big and they have such a... Aero, well it's not aerodynamic because they live in the sea but that's sort of you know what I mean they have such a mm, very streamlined um, energy efficient way of moving
0: that yeah they I guess move the, so the turns are like that too aren't they so it's yeah. kind of less less labor intensive on their on their bodies yeah. than it would be for, for little old me running up and down the country <laughs> 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 yeah um, so obviously we're all about birds of prey, we talked about the, the turn there, but we do have uh, migratory species of mm. uh, raptors in the UK as well, don't we? So seasonally, you know, we'll see uh, some of these birds down here in the south of the country, and then they'll kind of disappear off up north to breed, and then we see them again uh, migrating down to the south coast during, during the winter. Um, mm. Have you seen any of these migratory species this year? I feel like I've missed out
1: um no i i've so i'm thinking about hobbies i guess hobbies are going to come back they're longer aren't they they come from uh africa yeah so they'll be back soon so it's a good time Mm. to start thinking about looking for hobbies um merlins tend to move within the country more don't they uh
0: so they leave their upland breeding areas between august and october and then they head to the coastal regions. Yeah, so they're going to head to the coastline for the winter and then head inland and yeah. further north ordinarily, I guess, to, to breed.
1: Um, and then long-eared owls as well?
0: Yeah, so the long-eared owls uh well, the, the birds that are in the furthest northern areas, and some of them actually come across from northern Europe. They'll migrate southwards during the winter, and those that kind of live already in the south, they're kind of resident there all year round. Um, and something interesting that, that little, uh, sorry, not little owls, different species. Long-eared owls um, will do, also during the winter, is they will kind of club together and roost communally, which I think is really interesting, so if you catch them right, there's every chance that you might see, you know, multiple long-eared owls in, in the same area, sometimes dozens, I think um, uh, So a few of my friends have, have been lucky enough to spot this communal oh, roosting nice. activity and, and seen you know, maybe 20 long-eared owls in the same area, wow. living in the same woodland so, quite a spectacle, I think
1: I guess that's more so in the winter when there's more birds here in the winter if they've come up from uh, mm. or come in from Europe. Um and form in those communal roosts. I wonder if the communal roosts include birds resident birds and migratory birds. Yeah, that would be really interesting to know, wouldn't it? Separate groups. Whether they're yeah.
0: kind of forming those bonds after they've made that trip across from, yeah, from yeah. Europe ready for the spring. Yeah, that'd be interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Hmm. So heading out a little bit further, we've got some of those uh, incredible European species and, and into Africa and Asia. Um, vultures, eagles, all species that migrate. In fact, lots of species. Oh, you know what I forgot? I forgot the osprey. That is like a classic oh, of course. migratory species of raptor we see in the UK during yeah. the summer. Coming and, uh, and and fishing here, breeding here during the summer and then heading back to uh, sub-Saharan Africa um, and living alongside the yeah, the yeah. African fish eagles during the winter
1: yeah extra special because they breed with us yeah how nice is that back down yeah that's nice um and i think the ones the ones that we tend to get in the uk that breed in the uk are sort of north uh sorry not north west africa that they um go back to Oh, okay yeah um in the winter so Yeah, yeah i
0: used to live not too far away from um rutland water um, and so yeah. that that was kind of like a, a space that was really keen on trying to encourage them back. And I think they had quite mm. a few pairs by the time I left to come and move down to to Wiltshire and Hampshire. And um, yeah, what a success story! Again, not really seeing ospreys for many years, and then encouraging them back, mm. um, trying to get those those birds to wed themselves to that yeah, environment. Yeah. And obviously, they they found it there.
1: Yeah, I th- I saw them at, um, Rutland. When I went up for bird fair a couple of oh, years yeah, ago. Oh, yeah, of course. We Sadly, that's not happening anymore,
0: look. is it? Bird fair is no, no. more. Ah.
1: Yeah, but it was really nice to see the Osprey. I think they had quite a few chicks, actually. Because um, for a big bird of prey, they have
0: multiple quite, youngsters. They
1: have, Yeah, multiple young. Yeah, um, I there's think they actually had three, there's, or maybe even four.
0: There was a, a great um, documentary I was watching at the back end of last year, actually. I don't know if it's still on. I think it was on. Sky, um, which was narrated by Sean Bean, and it was about um, ospreys in one of the southern states of, of the US, but it's a really great documentary, all about osprey life cycle, and there were three chicks, two females and a male, they thought, mm. and um, yeah, a really, really nice visual, so if you if you fancy popping something on for an hour, and you want to know more about ospreys, obviously not the same birds as these West African slash european british ospreys yeah, but ones. you know very very similar in their um hunting style and flight style and, and obviously equally as beautiful uh but vultures are kind of uh i'm gonna guess flagship birds for our uh, work overseas they are some of yeah. the longest distance migrants as well aren't they of birds of prey um and there's one particular uh project that we have started working on kind of uh yeah, it's kind of new to us. Are you able to tell us a little bit about this Project Hannah?
1: Yeah, so it's um Egyptian vultures. So Egyptian vultures are really the only sort of true migrant, I guess, in um in the vulture world. I guess bearded vultures do migrate to an extent, mm. but um Egyptian vultures have a, a very long migration um and uh move, you know, pretty epic distances. Um, in their range but Egyptian vultures have two sort of distinct populations um, and we know quite a lot about the western population so our our Egyptian vulture at the trust Bow, she is a western Egyptian vulture so that's across um, Europe and, Afri- and Africa that that, um, that particular population lives and then the population that we are doing some investigation into is the Eastern population, which is more in Central Asia, um, okay. and we're yeah, so we're looking at the migrations there because we know we know quite a lot less about that population, about how they move, where they're spending the winter, um, where they're actually what routes they're actually taking on their migrations, and obviously by finding this out, we, it means that we know more about the threats that they face on those migrations, um, and then we can conserve them better. So. Our colleagues at the University of East Anglia—they um, are working with a couple of other organisations to go in and tag birds in Uzbekistan. Um, so it's chicks in the nest that are tagged when, just before they're ready to fledge, and then we can follow them with a GPS satellite to see where they're moving. Um, yeah, it's an amazing, fascinating project, um, and we found some pretty interesting, surprising results. Um, so three birds were tagged and they moved uh, They moved really, really far for a start. One of them more than 6,000 kilometres, which wow. already is a huge, huge distance. And you've got to think this is a... How do they know where they're going? Because this is a bird that's just fledged and then it's like, right... I'm yeah, off.
0: this is not something. This is not a bird that's going to be staying with its parents side by side no. for months and months on that first migration. It's literally yeah. off you go six thousand kilometers on your first yeah. on your first go. That's exactly. incredible! Wow.
1: And that one, that one in particular, was really surprising because it went all the way from Uzbekistan through like um, the Arabian Peninsula and then into Yemen.
0: So a bit of sightseeing yeah. on the way.
1: Yeah, definitely. And what another bird, one of the other birds actually went through India um and did a nice little tour of all of the hotspots in India like flew right past the Taj Mahal.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's like proper um proper <laughs> yeah. tourism moment for that vulture.
1: Um yeah, so took a little bit of a nice tourist route there and we've I've actually got a little photo um showing his his tracks where he's flown i
0: thought you were gonna say you've got a photo of him outside the taj mahal no (laughs) that would
1: be incredible that would be be incredible (laughs) um but a photo which it's not a photo sorry an image which shows his routes past the taj mahal and crossing the um big river that goes through um that city so yeah really interesting
0: and we can we can probably put that on the blog, can we? The route yes, that these absolutely. birds are, or this particular yeah. bird have been taken, so you can have a look at that yeah. epic migration that these birds are taking.
1: But um, yeah, so really, really interesting. But I will I won't um, bang on too much because we've got a really uh, fascinating comment from um, Dr. John Burnside. So he is our um, the lead on this project, um, along with some other organisations, and he's going to tell us a bit more about the Egyptian vultures.
2: Hello, my name is John Burnside and I'm a research fellow at the University of East Anglia. In my day-to-day job, I study a bird called the Asian hubara. This is a type of bustard that lives in in Asia and the Middle East. Uh, I actually work in a place called Uzbekistan and I've been working there for about 10 years where I study the captive breeding and release of Asian hubara as part of a conservation program and I also study various aspects of their life such as survival migration and breeding. So Uzbekistan is a very interesting country. It's located in the middle of Central Asia and it's actually right at the center of the Central Asian migratory flyway. This is a very important flyway that has about 200 different species of birds using it and all of these birds pass through Uzbekistan Unfortunately, Uzbekistan, like many of the other countries in that region, have been sorely understudied, and the conservation programs aren't as well developed as other areas of the world. So, we're missing a lot of information on the species passing through there, uh, what their current statuses are, what threats exist to them, and how we might improve their situation. So, aside from my work with Asian Hubara, One species I've always been interested in is the Egyptian vulture, and in 2020, uh, myself and two friends, Anna Ten and Vladimir Dobrev, um, hatched the idea to try and study the Egyptian vulture in Uzbekistan. Actually, the Egyptian vulture is an endangered species. It's the smallest vulture in the Old World, and it's quite iconic looking. It's white all over, and it has a yellow face. So it's very distinctive compared to some of the other vultures. So the Egyptian vulture is understudied in all of Asia, really. It's quite well studied in Europe, in the Balkans, and in North Africa, where there have been intensive programs to try and understand the reasons for decline. And those programs in Europe and the Balkans have really identified, using satellite tracking, that. This species is declining mainly due to uh, mortality during their migration and mortality on their wintering grounds. Threats to the Egyptian vulture are wide and varied. They include things like electrocution from power lines when they when they land on them. Uh, They also include people hunting them. Additionally, there are problems like Uh, birds colliding with wind farms and also vultures have a hard time flying over water and many of the vultures trying to pass over the Mediterranean for the first time under migration from Europe to Africa actually fail to get across and end up drowning. So these programs in Europe have really been able to identify the reasons for decline of the Egyptian vulture in, in those areas and this has allowed them to target conservation action around the wintering grounds, but also where they can improve breeding in, uh, in the Balkans, for example, and use captive breeding and release to bolster the populations. In contrast, in Uzbekistan and throughout Asia, people don't even know the migration routes of these birds. So, for example, we have birds breeding in Uzbekistan and people see them there every year and we know they're migratory, but we actually don't know their migration routes and we don't know where they winter. The populations of Egyptian vulture in Uzbekistan, even though there's per-quality data, that data does suggest that they have been declining. So, based on the methodologies that we've seen in, uh, in Europe, myself, Anna Ten and Vladimir Dobrev decided that it would be very interesting to try and understand what the migration routes were for this species, and also what threats might exist for it in that region. So to try and answer this question of the migration routes, this required us to go into the field in Uzbekistan and find Egyptian vulture nests, which had chicks in them. And these chicks had to be the right size, um, which is about 65 days old and maybe about 1.2 kilograms. Uh, We had to find these nests, uh, safely climb into the nests and extract the chicks whereupon we would attach satellite transmitters to them. These satellite transmitters are very clever. They've got solar panels on them and small batteries so they can generate power and last for a very, very long time. Uh, They record the GPS locations of the birds every hour or even more frequent sometimes, we set it to maybe 15 minutes so we know where the bird is all the time. And we actually receive this data over the mobile phone network So it's almost like the Egyptian vultures having a small telephone on their back where they send us text messages with the information on on their locations. After attaching the satellite transmitter with a harness, the chicks are put back into the nest and they'll remain there for another 15 or 20 days until they fledge. After they fledge, they don't do very much really, They, they start taking small flights out around the nest and returning to that nest during the day and possibly learning how to forage from their parents and probably still being fed by their parents. So in total we were able to tag four birds. We named them Bukhara, Anya, Ares and Timor. So we were very excited to start monitoring the movements of these birds because this is actually the first time anyone had ever satellite tagged these type of birds in Asia. So this was completely novel work from the four birds actually only three of them transmitted data as we believe the transmitter on one of the birds called Bukhara actually didn't work in the end, which was unfortunate. But for the three other birds, we've got excellent data. Quite interestingly, from September, all of these birds started to migrate on their first autumn migration. Uh, They headed south through Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan. And the three birds, really interestingly, went to different locations. These very different strategies were quite important. So if I describe those, first off, we had Timur. He flew south all the way from Uzbekistan and hit the Iranian coast. Uh, right off the the, Gulf, the Persian Gulf. He was quite interesting because we thought he might fly across the Persian Gulf and head into the Middle East, but he didn't. He appeared to have a bit of a phobia of the water and he, he followed the coastline east a little bit and then he started heading west and he headed all the way along the Iranian coastline until he got into Iraq and in Kuwait and actually bypassed the Persian Gulf He then headed southwest into Saudi Arabia and spent several weeks heading through that region until he got to the southwest coast of Saudi Arabia. This is all a very arid area and very hot, but this southwest coast of Saudi Arabia is extremely well known for migratory Egyptian vultures coming from Europe and the Balkans. So I'm sure on his travels, he met up with many different vultures speaking Bulgarian or Georgian or, or even uh, Italian possibly. Uh, it was quite interesting to see him in Saudi Arabia, but he only remained there for another couple of weeks. And in November of 2021, he went into Yemen. Um, so not many people maybe know that vultures go to Yemen, but this is also another well-known area. We were quite tentatively watching him because we thought he might cross uh, over, over uh, into Africa. Uh, onto the Horn of Africa, which you get many Egyptian vultures from these European and Balkan countries making that type of migration. But since um, Timur arrived in November into Yemen, he hasn't left that area, and he's become very resident. In contrast, Aries and Anya had very different routes. Uh, Aries actually took a route through the east of Pakistan, skirting around the mountains, and headed all the way to the south of Pakistan and then straight uh, over the Indus River and into India. He's shown quite interesting movements actually. He went to a dump site in Rajasthan in India which is called Bikanur. This area is absolutely well known for its congregation of vultures in the winter. Uh, Bikonur has a huge carcass dump where uh, the Indian, local Indians, uh, dump, I think, dead cattle that have died for natural reasons, really. And these large number of carcasses attract uh, thousands of Egyptian vultures and steppe eagles and other types of vultures. So Ares spent a couple of weeks there and then he moved on to the, to the east and headed all the way over to Delhi, where he passed India Gate, which is a famous uh, location in the city. Uh, But he didn't remain in Delhi long either, and he took a small trip down to Jaipur, um, which is the second point of the Golden Triangle in India. And then he spent a day in Jaipur and went back to New Delhi and remained there for a short time. And then he actually flew all the way over to the city of Agra, where the Taj Mahal is and he flew right over the Taj Mahal and since then, which, which was about uh, the beginning of January 2022, he's actually remained just on the banks of the river beside the Taj Mahal and he's been moving locally. So this is a very interesting bird and actually the Times of India wrote a news article about him and how he visited their golden triangle and visited the Taj Mahal. And finally we have Anya not to be confused with Anna Ten, who's our our friend working on the project, but this is Anya the Vulture. She flew south uh, through uh, Iran, then into Pakistan, and she moved over the Indus to the southwestern corner of Pakistan, and she remained there for a while, but then she popped over into India, into the Rajasthan Desert. So even though she's in India, she's really been staying on this Pakistan-Indian border and she's been moving back and forth between Pakistan and India for for quite a few months now. So this is a very important bit of information that uh, you know, birds don't observe our political borders and they can move freely between them. But this area, it's very difficult to visit these birds on the ground because I think these border regions have got some security issues and people can't Visit them, visit them readily, but the bird seems to like it there, and she's remained there for at least three months now. So these results have been very interesting so far, and what they really reveal is that the Egyptian vultures breeding in Central Asia are actually connected, through their wintering grounds, to Egyptian vultures from the Balkans, from Georgia, from Europe, through their movements into the Middle East, but they're also connected to Egyptian vultures from uh, Asia, particularly India and Pakistan. So this is very important that they share this amount of connectivity because it means they will share the threats as well. But there is a lot of good conservation work happening for Egyptian vultures in uh, North Africa and in India and Pakistan. So this is some good news. and. Because these birds adopt different strategies, it means they hedge their bets uh, in, a, in a way because the threats are spread widely across different areas. It has been really great to share these results with all of the different vulture biologists working throughout, uh, throughout the world, really. And we've made many connections to people in Pakistan and India so far, but also in um, the Middle East and in Europe so although this work has been very fruitful it's still early days and we really need to continue to study these birds to get a full understanding of the variety of behaviour and the importance of different wintering sites to them and this requires us to track more individuals which we're planning to do in 2022 In biology, we often say it's very important to understand not just the mean, but the variance in behaviours. So it would be great to understand what proportion of the birds migrate towards India and Pakistan, and what proportion of them migrate to the Middle East. So those are future plans, really, to try and understand the core fundamental biology of this species and its ecology. It's really through the support of organizations like the Hawk Conservancy Trust and other organizations like the Ornithological Society of the Middle East and the Oriental Bird Club that we've been able to carry out this work. We think it's very important and also very interesting to understand the world around us and to understand the threats and just the natural systems uh, in Asia. This is a really wonderful region in Central Asia and i would really encourage anyone to visit it if they want to see the vast untouched deserts and the amazing wildlife there anyone interested in following the project can do so either through the hawk conservancy trust website or also on our website which is central on the news section of our website we'll be posting regular updates of developments but also the movements of the birds and their progress so far. We really look forward to seeing what they do in the next few months and also the next few years. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk on your podcast.
0: Fantastic. Um, it's good to hear from John there. it's We've got these wonderful partners right across the world haven't we and uh, certainly here in the UK who all want to get involved in in conserving vultures which is of course what we're all about how long is this project going to last i'm sure this is perhaps an ongoing thing that we're going to keep tabs on some of these birds
1: yeah absolutely um so it's ongoing um yeah we'll keep tabs on the birds that are already tagged and there will be more birds that will be tagged as well so they're hoping to tag more juveniles And they're also hoping to um, catch adults and tag those um, to see where adults are moving as well, because it it might be slightly different. Obviously, when juveniles take their first foray into the migrating world, I'm sure it's um, yeah. Hence the roundabout sightseeing. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, we'll we'll watch this uh, project with uh, great interest, and I'm sure everybody will be very keen to hear. Uh, what uh, what comes of it in the in the future. So yeah, have a look on the blog that accompanies the episode here. Keep an eye on our social media. I'm sure Hannah will be updating that as we get uh, more information yeah. as this project progresses, but it's really exciting uh, to be working with another species of vulture. Um, and if that doesn't uh, whet your appetite enough for uh, Egyptian vultures, then make sure you come and see us at the Hawk Conservancy Trust as well at our visitor center in Wayhill in Hampshire because during the summer we fly Bo, the Egyptian vulture. Um, as mm. Hannah mentioned and she is just the most stunning flyer isn't she she's a high yeah. flyer this is obviously something that Egyptian vultures use on that migration is to gain height use thermals and travel from A to B from great height um, I think just over two and a half thousand feet is her record flying oh, high wow. above Reggie's meadow uh, at, at the truss and to see her descend from that sort of height to land on the end of usually uh, Gary's arm is um what a sight to see. What a
1: sight. Yeah, she's amazing. She's a great ambassador for this project. Excellent. Right, well, shall we move on? We can, we can. So now, a returning favourite. It's time for a bit of fun with our matter-of-fact challenge. So this pitch is <laughs> You and me, Tom, against one another to come up with the best fact in the chosen category.
0: Oh, last series I won? Yeah, you did. Don't rub it in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember what it was.
0: <laughs> well, the last but... thing we did was the job swap and everybody thought that you did my job better than I did yours. Uh, oh, which, considering I was? broke the equipment, I think you, they're probably right on that fact. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Well, anyway, we're going to wipe the slate clean, are we, for series three of the podcast um, and start now with a new topic, um, which is very fitting.
0: It is, yeah. And there's so many impressive things going on all the time in the natural world, but there are few more impressive than the migrations of animals and the distances they undertake whilst on those migrations. So, with that in mind, shall we have a go at the Matter of Fact Challenge?
1: Let's do it.
0: This month's matter-of-fact challenge is...
1: Most impressive migration.
0: Okay, Hannah, uh, picture the scene. It's late spring. You're lying in the long grass of a beautiful wildflower meadow. It's warm, the sun's on your face, and it is quiet, apart from a few buzzing bees. Maybe the distant rumblings of a lovely trickling stream. Then you hear a bird in the sky. It is a beautiful, beautiful wheeling sound and it is none other than a swift. I think swifts are surely, surely the sound of summer here in the UK. As soon as I hear a swift, I think, yes, there are good times to come. Uh, And they arrive here on their migration usually in like the last week of April or in early May, and then they stay uh, long enough to breed. We don't get them for very long, do we? They tend to like start to head back Mm -hmm. on their migration in, um, I think, I think July um, can be the earliest point. Or if uh, if we get a really good summer, maybe pushing into August. Uh, But they undertake these huge migrations to find food, to find a, a great place to nest. Um, and these migrations are super impressive. For such a tiny bird, they weigh grams, these birds, maybe 30 to 40 grams in weight. And yet, they have one of the longest migration journeys anywhere in the world. Roughly thirteen to 14,000 miles every single year. <laughs> I think you don't get any more impressive a migration than that, do you?
1: That's pretty... you got... We got a good game, Tom. Good game. <laughs> Did you like the
0: imagery <laughs> that was? Uh,
1: it was lovely. You've that has won absolutely already, nothing to I do think. with the
0: fact, but I think it sets the scene for just how grateful we are for these birds migrating to come and see us. And I went to a wonderful talk about swifts uh, last year, and uh, it's great to see how many people are really keen to encourage swifts by having uh, swift bricks. Have you seen swift bricks? Yeah yeah in, so in these are house. kind of built into properties uh, to try and offer them like a cavity to nest in uh, when they come back from that migration so uh, quite famously they don't really land um, during their life cycle very much at all except to breed and to incubate those youngsters and once they take off those youngsters are flying they're feeding on the wing they're sleeping on the wing they're doing everything even breeding on the wing and uh, and I think that migration just takes the biscuit, really. Yeah, 22,000 kilometres or thereabout for the most Very wonderful nice. bird, or one of the most wonderful birds, the swift.
1: That's a good one. It's a good one.
0: So that was my matter-of-fact challenge, Hannah. Can you beat it?
1: I'm not sure that I can. No, nor me. <laughs> but have a go you've, anyway. you've got UK, and... Oh, no, I'm not going to say any more because I'm just going to make it sound better. Um... <laughs> so mine is because I have a I think we know this from from previous podcasts and guests and etc that I do have a soft spot for um, generally the ocean and water um, but sharks
0: yeah you do um,
1: so I and and I'll just drop it in that I have swam with this animal, if,
0: in case you don't remember. I know what's coming now, and it's like a bit of a bugbear of mine, because way, way back on episode one, if you've not listened to it, it was, uh, episode one was called Inspired by the Wild, and we talked about our favourite wildlife moments in our life, and uh, I I think I happily said something like the the first time I saw a badger or something, It's very tame. That's still good it is honestly yeah no no disrespect to the badger it's an incredible incredible animal and i i still stick to my guns on that as a a wildlife moment top wildlife moment in my life but it's not However, swimming
1: with a whale shark is it whale
0: shark is your matter of fact challenge and yeah i'm, I'm just gonna keep quiet now go on explain why it's <laughs> um, got the most impressive migration
1: so it's a bit it's a bit left field because it has the most impressive migration for me because Well, firstly, because it's a whale shark, but also because we don't know very much about it. And I just think that that is fascinating because we know a lot about the natural world, but there's also a huge amount we don't know. And for such a ginormous animal, we actually don't really know where these animals go and where they, um, for a start, where they give birth. Like no, no one has ever seen a small whale shark. What? No one's ever seen, like, a baby whale shark.
0: Wow, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, because we don't really know where they go and give birth. So,
0: um, they, but, so these are, like, animals that are, like, 10 metres long, right, from yeah, front, front to yeah. back? It's enormous, enormous animals. Um,
1: they're the biggest shark in the world. Um, so the biggest fish. Um, but they all, we know that they migrate far, and the r- longest recorded migra- migration was with by putting a tag on um, a female. And she traveled 20,000 kilometers. Wow. Um, And we think that they move into sort of the middle of the ocean, like the middle of the, um, to areas that are maybe around um, like seamounts. So areas that are maybe a bit higher, but still underwater um, or really remote islands. And they they think that that's maybe where they give birth. mature females but wherever they're seen in the world by humans there's only ab- um, about 30 percent of those aggregations so you know you get aggregations of them like a long coastline so where i saw them near tanzania and there's other places along like that coast of africa and in other places in indonesia and other places in mexico etc but 70 percent of those aggregations are male so and it can't be it can't be that that's what the population is because it wouldn't sustain itself so it's 50 50 but these mature females like nobody really knows exactly where they're going which i think is fascinating and also they can dive super super deep so that's happened before where they've put a tag on it and it's um where the the um shark has gone so deep the tag stopped working um so they can dive like almost two kilometers down.
0: You no, know, you're you're starting to sell sell this to me, and and if, uh. if it was uh, if it was most impressive fish, you probably. But would mostly, have I'm just
1: bigging them up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, but it, it's super cool that we don't. There's so much we don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, that's why I think it's so impressive because we don't really know, and it's just really exciting because there's still things for us to learn about it.
0: Excellent. I think. Yeah. You yeah. played a good card there against my the beautiful swift.
1: What does what does Rowan think?
0: Rowan, what do you think? Who who has won the best? The, what is it? The most impressive uh, migration. He says no no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes oh. he has a lot to say. Right now, I'm very grateful for the fact that he's not got very much to say. (laughs) I think he's been giving his mum a hard time today, so um, oh dear. I just thought I'll bring him onto the podcast, and um, yeah, he'll be well. He'll be in my seat next next time, next two months' time. He'll be chatting away. He'll know all the stuff about wildlife. He'll just be, yeah,
1: perfect.
0: Bring on the next generation.
1: I did read this week that if um, in a paper because I'm doing some research about um mindfulness and about uh, con- like conservation related behavior and how we can sort of better connect with nature and it did say that um people who tend to go into conservation jobs and uh, work professionally in conservation usually they have been brought up immersed in nature wow. so and They've spent, like their parents have made sure they've spent lots of time in nature. So you've got definitely got a future conservationist there. Yeah, me.
0: let's hope so, eh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so remember, it's up to you. Wherever and however you're listening to Nature's a Hoot, vote for which fact you think best fits the bill of most impressive migration.
0: So head over to our Instagram stories or our Twitter feed, both at Hawk Conservancy, to vote.
1: And we will, of course, be revealing the winner, me, of this episode's Matter of Fact Challenge next time.
0: Not a chance, not a chance.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So that's it for our March episode. We're very pleased once again to be opening our doors to our wonderful visitors after our winter break. And you can come and see us and our wonderful team of birds of prey sometime soon. And a reminder to subscribe to Nature's A Hoot wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're feeling generous, we'd be very grateful if you could give us a review too, Hmm. if you like us, obviously. It helps us get our message out to the wider world, and in turn, helps us to support the work we do conserving birds of prey.
0: Absolutely. Although, for now, it's probably time for me to go and change another nappy.
1: (laughs) I think I'll sit that one out.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in May for more Nature Field fun. Bye for now.
1: Bye.